0: Epic does not even begin to describe the ending of Stranger Things Season 4. Over Episodes 8 and 9, we have been taken on a four-hour journey featuring a battle of epic proportions. They then leave us at the literal gates of hell, knowing more than ever that things are going to get worse before they get better. In this final recap of Stranger Things Season 4, we will break down episodes 8 and 9, look at all the themes, references, observations, and then wrap up the entire fourth season. So strap in, we've got a lot to cover. Somebody's going to die. As the eighth episode of Stranger Things Season 4 comes to a close, we hear these words spoken by Will. We then are taken into the Winnebago with an individual shot of each of the remaining characters, starting with Steve. Is this a singular proclamation or will there be multiple casualties as season four of Stranger Things comes to a close? So let's look at the plot recap. Netflix begins with a recap of everything that went down in volume one because it's been a month since we saw the end of that. We catch up with Eleven who has learned the truth about Henry. She feels as if all these experiments done with her in the lab were only to track him down. The Papa explains that the intention was to track the Soviets, but Eleven knows he can't be trusted. But ultimately, she did open the gate to the upside down and Henry, one, Vecna has only been growing with power the whole time. The rest of the gang knows he preys on people with traumatic pasts and that there will be a fourth victim. Max explains that the grandfather clock chimes four times and with three murders so far, that fourth chime will signal the end of the world. Eleven will be the only thing that can save Hawkins, but Papa will not let her go. The military is after her, suspecting she is behind all the killings. Mike, Will, Jonathan and our stoner relief pal have the coordinates and are on their way to rescue her. Back in Russia, Murray, Joyce and Hopper have escaped from the Soviet prison with some hostages in tow. They need to get back to the States, but there's no transportation. Yuri has a helicopter, which he has never flown, and it seems like they're pretty screwed. A call is placed to Dr. Owens, but will anything be able to happen in time to get them back home? Meanwhile, the Scooby-Doo gang has put together their plot to kill Vecna. His holdout appears to be in the attic of the old Creel home. And while he's in the Upside Down, he'll have to physically be in the attic like he's Dracula lying in a coffin. This is where they can take him out. Max will be the bait knowing she's got the Kate Bush song to pull her out of any harrowing situation. When in doubt, just run toward the light. The kids in Hawk and Steel Winnebago load up on ammunition and realize the basketball team is looking to take them out too. Whether they're facing the supernatural or these high school hicks, they have begun to understand this may not end well. Even though Eleven has told her friends are safe, she knows better and has been able to see them in the dark void. Back in California, the military has attacked and taken out the people in the lab. Eleven busts her way out, only to be restrained by Brenner. The two of them flee amid all the destruction and even though Brenner is shot down, Eleven takes out the helicopter and the soldiers. Amidst all this destruction, her powers have returned and Mike, Jonathan will finally find her. They know she's in danger, as is everyone in Hawkins. So will they return in time? Is Eleven strong enough to take on Vecna? And what role does the military play in all this? As we look in all the themes and observations of episode eight, I feel that the pandemic filming restrictions are most notable in this episode. This is obviously no fault of their own, but seeing the big wide open scenes in the field and then in the desert makes it pretty obvious these were the only options to continue production. They seem quite out of place, but this was probably the only option. I'm wondering if everything in the Nina facility and the death of Brenner was intended to originally play out like this. Did they have to adjust on the fly? And what was the original intent for scenes like this? Leaving Brenner dying in the middle of the desert doesn't seem like it was the original plan, but I may be wrong. So theme-wise, we keep coming back to that theme of what family is. It doesn't always have to be your direct blood family, but can be the family we've created. Papa or Brenner explains to Levin that the two of them are family and we can clearly see in the three different groups how our family can be created. And it isn't just limited to those we share last name with. The bond between Mike, Eleven, and Will is incredibly strong. And as Will explains to Mike in the van with some deep subtext there, they are going to be connected forever. The people we go through intense experiences with often bond us to them for life. The group in Hawkins has built their own little family and it's just as real as any siblings or direct relatives. No matter how they are created, a family is in it together for the long haul and nothing can break that bond. Hopper and Eleven are not related, but he is her father. And the bonds we create with the families we are given are so strong that they'll take us across the country or across the world to get back to them. And ultimately, who is the monster? It's the theme that keeps coming up through this entire season. Is the monster something living in us that we have to suppress? Eleven has struggled with this the entire season, but now, in her eyes, Brenna, Brenner, or Papa, is indeed the monster. Whether or not his motives have good intentions, the monster can still form within us. Eleven has been able to suppress the thoughts that she is the monster, but will this hold up? Or will a confrontation with Vecna reveal more than she realizes? There's a definite calm before the storm feeling at the end of episode 8, but that's to be expected. We need a moment to catch our breath and prepare us for what is no doubt an intense finale. Brenner, in his dying last moments, has freed Eleven literally and physically from her restraint. He knows there is no stopping her. As of right now, she knows she's not the monster, and the power of love, without sounding cheesy, and family are more powerful than anything the Upside Down could produce. So we move into the final episode, which is essentially a full-length movie, and everyone is preparing for battle, and we are left feeling pretty unsure of who will survive and who will live to fight another day. Everyone is trying to get back to Hawkins, but it looks impossible. The California crew cannot drive there in time, and Joyce, Murray, and Hopper are half a world away in the Soviet Union. They don't know about Vecna and the opening of the Fourth Gate specifically, or the end of the world, but the other two groups do. Nancy, Steve, and the crew have armored up Rambo style, with Robin wearing a red beret, and have entered into the Upside Down with a four-stage plan to kill Vecna. Dustin and Eddie will be the decoys to draw away the Hellbats. Erica is on the lookout, Max and Lucas will beat Vecna, and Robin, Steve, and Nancy will take him out. Back in Russia, Joyce and Hopper finally hook up, and they all wait for the broken helicopter to start working. But there's a problem. Jason and the Hick basketball players have tracked down Lucas, believing him to be part of the satanic curse influencing the Hellfire Club. If you want a little more on this fear of satanic uh, culture in Dungeons and Dragons, I did an episode just a few episodes ago all about that if you want to look into something that had a big influence on this season. Back on the West Coast, the crew realizes they will not make it back to Hawkins, but maybe there's another way. While seeing a billboard depicting a happy family, Eleven remembers how she can use a sensory deprivation bath to go into the minds of other people. She did it with her mother and Billy. Could she do the same thing with Max? The West Coast crew makes her way to another surfer boy location, empties out a freezer and creates their own sensory tank. The Soviet crew has contacted the US and knows things are about to go to hell there. Instead of escaping Russia, they go back to the prison knowing there's a gate there with Demogorgons. We are reminded about the hive mind and how one area can have an effect on all parts of the hive. Maybe by taking out the Demogorgons there, they can weaken Vecna and give the kids a fighting chance. In the Creel Mansion, Max is warding off Vecna by continuing to play the song of the summer of 2022, Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush. When she turns it off, it's time for phase two. Eleven has now found Max in her subconscious, but Vecna hasn't appeared. Max goes even deeper into her trauma. She admits that she had wished at some point Billy had died more than what she had previously disclosed. The way she's been presenting it is she wished it had been her, but we know he made her life hell and she's opening up for the first time ever. Her noble admission wasn't as noble as she made it out to be. This is the real trauma in her but Vecna has emerged and he's been impersonating Lucas. The whole thing is actually happening in the upside down Vecna connection. In real life, Lucas sees Max in that trance now, but then that D-bag Jason shows up threatening to ruin everything. Eleven has gone into Max's memory and sees her as a kid skateboarding somewhere in California. They are then transported to one of Max's and Eleven's happiest memories, the snowball from season two. Key songs such as Every Breath You Take by The Police and Dream a Little Dream of Me by Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong play while Max is alone in the ball. Then Vecna finally appears. To help Steve, Nancy, and Robin get a clear run into the Upside Down to the Creel House, we get one of the most epic scenes you will ever see when Eddie shreds on guitar to "Master Puppets" by Metallica. This is going to draw the hellbats away from them, and more on this in the observation part of this episode. Eddie continues to draw them away, but instead of running, he stands his ground. He will no longer be a coward, but a hero, and face these hellbats head on. Steve, Nancy, and Robin have been attacked by Vecna; are being strangled by his tentacles. At the snowball, Eleven has burst through and taken out Henry, Vecna, whatever you want to call him at this point. But Vecna blames Eleven and not Brenner for creating him. He gets the upper hand and raises Max ready to kill her. In a flashback, we realize that Vecna created the Mind flare. He wasn't just a foot soldier, but had been in control this whole time. What Will was feeling back in season one and two was really Vecna. Eleven is struggling in battle, and the crew in California can do nothing but watch her thrash around in the makeshift tank. To infiltrate her mind, Mike uses his feelings instead of music to reach Eleven. Now all three groups are fighting in tandem to take out Vecna in one way or another. In an astonishing scene that marries together running up that hill with the Stranger Things theme song, Hopper destroys the Demogorgon while Nancy, Robin, and Steve pepper Vecna with Molotov cocktails. Vecna is defeated, but it comes at a cost. Eddie has died a hero and Max also appears to be dead but Eleven has used some deep power to prevent this, but she's still in terrible shape and was dead for over a minute. Now she's in a coma with a hint of what might be one of the plot lines in season five, but more on that in the observations. But since Max was technically killed, it was the fourth death and chime of the clock. So it opened up the gates of hell or the upside down right into Hawkins. This is explained as uh, a massive earthquake to the public, but we obviously know better. The season finishes with some bonding again between Nancy and Jonathan, and everyone is reunited, including Hopper and Eleven. I had completely forgotten that Eleven still thought he was dead. As we see ashes sort of snow their way down on Hawkins, the hairs on the back of Will's neck stand up. He feels the mind flare, but this time he won't be the only one who sees it because it's really happening. And we now know what and who the mind flare really is. So let's dive into the observations in episode nine. And again, there's a lot to cover in what is essentially a two and a half hour feature film. The first thing to look at is the ending. We are left, of course, on a very ominous note, but that's to be expected in the penultimate season. Everything has to go to literal hell if we're going to come back from it. The season ends in a perfect mirror to The Empire Strikes Back. Empire is a movie that also ends on a real note of unsurety, and this was always the intent. It's like a three-act play, where the second act is often when things go to hell, and that's often the best act of a play. We know now that Stranger Things will end after season five, so season four is like their second act. It's The Empire Strikes Back. It's like Infinity War. We even get a similar image to the crew and Hawkins staring at the smoldering ashes in Hawkins, completely unsure of things the same way Luke and Leia are at the end of The Empire Strikes Back. Even look at the the shots of these. Even the positioning of the characters is pretty identical as that movie and this season comes to an end. Let's look at some significant use of music, which of course has always been a key element of Stranger Things. When that Master of Puppets scene hit, I freaked out. At first, I didn't catch it. I thought Eddie was playing Crazy Train by Ozzy Osbourne. When I realized it was Metallica, I had my sound system cranked so high, it didn't blow out, but I think it bottomed out and completely distorted my speakers where I had to just sort of restart them up again. It was like the never-ending story scene in season three. And this scene came out of nowhere. And the word epic doesn't properly describe it. And I had goosebumps still thinking about this scene. I saw Metallica live years ago in a relatively small venue of around 10,000 people. And it was a tour where they had their stage, basically a giant square in the middle of the stadium. And it slowly rotated so everyone could get like a full vantage point. And we were maybe... 20 rows away but at stage level and j- the power of this band is just indescribable not just like from a volume perspective but the the power of this band and the music and hearing this live and how flawless it is and the legacy of these guys it was i'll never forget it but i digress And what's interesting, besides featuring the original recording, the son of uh, the Metallica bass player contributed additional guitar tracks played by Eddie. So it had this sort of raw live performance feel, but then mixed in with the actual recording, which is just incredible. Also, some interesting lyrical connections in Master Puppets, which seem to reference Vecna himself and how he's been controlling everyone like puppets. So one line of the song goes, Master Puppets, I'm pulling your strings, twisting your mind and smashing your dreams. Blinded by me, you can't see a thing. Just call my name because I'll hear you scream. So Vecna was literally pulling their strings when he would raise his victims off the ground like they were a marionette. Then I like the callback during Eddie's death to the song When It's Cold, I'd Like to Die by Moby, which was also used with Will all the way back in season one. And again, I legit goosebumps during that mixing of Kate Bush and the Stranger Things theme. Just an astonishing use of past and present music to make something even more compelling. It's like you add these things together to get something greater than the sum of their parts. And there's something kind of beautiful about taking a song from the 80s and combining it with a modern piece that is also based in the 80s. And speaking of Kate Bush, thanks to Stranger Things, she has now set a record for the longest period of time for the debut of a song to it hitting number one with 37 years. Speaking of music as well, did this connection with songs in Vecna call back all the way to season one and we didn't realize it? In that season, a key song was Should I Stay or Should I Go by The Clash. And if you remember, Will was continuously singing it to himself while in the Upside Down. Did that ward off Vecna and allow him to survive there for so long? Here are a few more of my random observations. To me, I think the ending was a touch too long. I think they could have cut 10 to 15 minutes out of this and had an even tighter movie, but we've been waiting three years for this thing, so I was not complaining at all. I can't believe Steve is still alive, based on all the theories and uh, presumptions about this. I really thought he was done. I thought he was a goner. He didn't even have a scratch on him at the end. And I think they took a little of the easy way out by not uh, you know, taking out a major character, instead killing a new character in Eddie, and then killing Max only to have her survive. I, I really think a major character had to be taken out this season. Um, just to leave it even more on an ominous note, this this isn't a cartoon show. This is a, essentially a horror movie, and I think that's always an important part of the horror movie trope. So, I mean, they did, but in a roundabout way. Also, the Russian subplot didn't seem absolutely necessary. They, they still needed something for Hopper, Joyce, and Murray, but whether that was to limit cast members together due to pandemic restrictions or not, I, I don't know if there was an ideal solution in that situation. Speaking of Russia, I was pretty upset there was no connection to the Upside Down and the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. It was right there with the Soviet connection, and they said it at the exact same time. Maybe this will be explored or explained in season five to explain what was happening in Russia, the way that Hawkins said the gates opening was just an earthquake. So maybe that will be the Soviet response to the same reaction that's happening there. We'll see. Also to me, Sadie Sink as Max is the clear MVP of this season. And she seems to be the driving force carrying the show forward. Millie Bobby Brown is still outstanding. And I thought um, Gaten Matarazzo as Dustin was at his best too. Let's look at some of the 1980s references in this last episode. And the references now are not as overt as they had been in past episodes and seasons. I feel a lot of the... Callbacks and references and all the other things were there to capitalize on the nostalgia and hook people in. Not that that's a bad thing at all, as that's what the major draw to the show originally was. Now, Stranger Things is its own entity, and they don't need nostalgia in there for nostalgia's sake. But we still get some great ones, including Joyce's Hulk Hogan shirt right during the peak of Hulkamania. We see the return of the Max's Michael Myers mask from season two. Vicky, of course, an obvious dead ringer for Molly Ringwald. Uh, there's references to Starsky and Hutch. Murray with the classic <laughs> Star Wars line i have got a bad feeling about this. At the end, Lucas is reading to Max Stephen King's The Talisman uh, while she's in the hospital. The Talisman is a story about a kid who goes across the country looking for the Talisman, hoping to save his mother. Is this hinting at what Lucas's role will be for the next season? Will he be the one looking for a way to save Max and he's going to go to the ends of the earth to do so? Speaking of Stephen King, the horror master tweeted out he was so on edge by the end of episode eight, he wasn't sure if he could handle the last episode. This is from Stephen King. I thought that was hilarious. So, speaking of the movies as well, there are some key films, as we talk about the 80s, that are a big influence on this season, even this last few episodes. Obvious, A Nightmare on Elm Street, which I covered in the previous reviews, Rambo, Red Dawn, I see a lot of It, uh, a bit of Ghostbusters, Aliens, of course, even a bit of A-Team kind of all mixed together. But at this point when it comes to the nostalgia factor the show doesn't have to resort to sticking in a he-man figure in every other scene because it now stands on its own and i think the focus is on driving the story forward and i really think this show especially this entire season four can stand alongside some of those classic things we love from the 80s like a nightmare on elm street or goonies or evil dead or, or similar offerings Stranger Things has cemented its own pop culture iconicness and kids will probably discover it decades from now. I could see the characters, the imagery, and the situations being referenced in content 30 years from now in the same way Stranger Things references things from the past. It's become a cultural touching point on its own and as I said I think it deserves its place along some of our favorite 80s classics. And as we look at the themes in this last episode, point i think we've you know into the standard love always wins territory but love hasn't completely won yet it was love that set 11 free in her training and it was the love of mike that helped pull her back to reality but at this point is that love strong enough to fully save max one core theme throughout this season of course is about the monster and the hero Do we all have this monster in us and can it be overcome? Max definitely does. The monster in her is her true feelings towards Billy. She put on that noble front sink. She wished she could have taken his place as reflected in running up that hill. But this is only to suppress how she was really feeling. If Vecna represents our greatest fears, did she let the monster win? Are we not the heroes we think we are? On the flip side of that is Eddie. He is perceived as a monster by the whole town, when in fact he is a genuine hero. Sacrifices himself for a town that hated him, and no one got to see this sacrifice. But the true hero doesn't perform their acts for the glory. They do them because it's right and just. I feel how this theme keeps coming back and has been a part of the show since season one in the lyrics for the song, We Could Be Heroes, Just For One Day. For too long, Eddie had run away from things instead of taking them head on. Now, when given the opportunity, he turns around to face the Hellbats. Like Vecna, those Hellbats can represent our fears. They continually come at us and they are relentless, but our fears don't have to control us. They don't need to be our master. Eddie didn't have to come crawling fast. He didn't have to obey his master. He had the power to crush the monster within him and let that superhero come out, even if it's just for one day. Max, of course, is dealing with the opposite of this, and many of the characters have been in conflict with themselves throughout season four. Eleven has obviously struggled with this hero monster issue. Lucas has struggled with the type of life he thought he wanted. Nancy has struggled with where her feelings really lie, and Joyce and Hopper have been conflicted in how they truly feel about one another. All of us are facing an internal battle of some sort, and it's hard to understand our true selves. Is it the version of us we present to the world, or is that just a cover-up of how we really feel? We also don't know the battle that everyone is facing, and how showing empathy to one another goes a long way. Eddie. He was presenting himself as this tough metal head and he was seen as a monster by all of those around him. Little did we know how he struggled with his own fears and insecurities. His whole life he chose to run away from those fears and never face anything head-on. Had other people known this, they may have shown him more consideration instead of treating him like the monster he clearly wasn't. Dustin was the only one who saw his true self He just had to be accepting and not dismissive. And ultimately, sometimes the hero is the person we least suspect. So let's try to recap this whole entire season. As of the time of this recording, Stranger Things Season 4 appears to be the most streamed show ever. Viewers have watched over 12 billion minutes of this show. A lot of that may be because of how long this season was, especially the last episode, but I don't think that's totally relevant. Stranger Things is the absolute backbone of Netflix itself and has set a record for also for most streaming viewers in a week. Netflix even crashed for a while when everyone rushed to watch the final two episodes. I don't know if you had to experience that or not. And if you wondered why the season was split into two parts, this may have to do with the financial predicament Netflix has found itself in. There's no secret that the streaming giant has been suffering. Subscriptions were down, profits were down, and hundreds of people were laid off. Since Stranger Things is their bread and butter, they took a strategic approach to the release of season four. I personally, and I've mentioned a lot in here, hate the binge model of viewing. I prefer a weekly release as I believe it builds more of a collective viewing experience and audience and a community. So that was maybe a minor, minor part of the reason, but the main reason appears to be financial. By splitting the last two episodes a month after volume one, Season four has now covered two financial quarters. This will help with the bottom line when indicating viewership and profits. It also made people pay for at least an extra month. Many people jump onto Netflix for a single month when they're not borrowing passwords, when a series comes out they're interested in. Since everyone would clearly want to finish the whole season, it required most people to purchase another month. Kind of a ratty move, but understandable knowing the situation they are in. Honestly, I didn't think season four would be this good. I knew it would be great, but I was worried so many pandemic delays and restrictions would affect the final product and I'm glad I was wrong. They still found a way to take what is essentially a show with a singular direction, but continue to turn it on its head and ultimately this all exists to set up for the last season. I loved season three. I thought it played more into that perfect 1980s nostalgia. It had a more bright and jovial tone despite all its destruction, but season three looks like a cartoon compared to season four. Like its characters, season four of Stranger Things is when it grew up. As I mentioned in previous reviews of this season, if season three was A New Hope, Star Wars A New Hope, we can clearly see how season four is the Empire Strikes Back. It's scarier, it's more intense, and at its core, it's a horror movie. The kids have grown up and the tone of the series has grown up with them, but what will this mean for season five? The first half seems as if it will be pretty destructive, but it will obviously have to end on a high note. Have we seen the series peak at its intensity and horror in this new season, or is it just a taste of things to come? I'm not sure how far into the future season five will go, but it looks like it may just continue right into 1986, possibly 1987. So the kids won't be much older, but the actors will. With each year that passes in the series, more growth is happening with these characters. They have been through a lifetime of things over what has only been the span of three years. How far into the future are we gonna go into season five? Time travel has been hinted at, so will the characters of Hawkins, Indiana have to go backward in order to move forward? Does taking out Vecna mean going back in time to eliminate him at the source? Or have they grown enough in their abilities and experience that they will be able to handle anything the future holds? So we'll finish it up here. What did you think of season four? Do you think it lived up to the hype? I I think it definitely did. And I think it was absolutely worth the wait. So as we finish here, I want to give a shout out to the patron of the week. That's from over at patreon.com, which is a way to support the show. And this week it's Anthony G. So normally we do like a bio profile on some of uh, the, the patron of the week's favorite things, but we got a different situation here because Anthony is actually an author and he's got a book coming out that takes place in the 80s, draws you know heavily on all the pop culture of the decade for in- inspiration. It's called Tommy and the Order of Cosmic Champions. It's going to come out in the fall and I can't wait to check this whole thing out and maybe we can cover it some more when it comes out. You can already pre-order hardcover copies of it at Amazon, Target, Walmart, Books a Million, Barnes and Noble. There's a website already called orderofcosmicchampions.com. If you're listening to this on whatever app in the show notes, I'll put a link to take you. Right there. And it's interesting because a little of the inspiration of this thing comes from this might be a a deep callback and something I'd completely forgotten about, but you may remember there was this create a character contest held by Mattel in 1985 for the Masters of the Universe toy line. And there's a whole crazy deep story about the real life winner of this whole thing. And this is going to influence. Quite a bit of this book. So, again, check it out Order of Cosmic Champions dot com. Uh, you can look the, if you do a Google search, but again, I'll c- include a link to that. So that's Anthony. So thank you for being here on Patreon. And if you're in a position to do so, you can consider supporting this show. And there's uh, for as little as a few bucks a month, you get different rewards and different audio rewards. Um, I've got the Everything 80s Movie Review Podcast over there. If you want to learn more, if you're interested, you can just go to patreon.com slash 80. So that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N com slash eight zero Okay, that's it for me. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it.